So join me then, and we're turning to Exodus chapter 30. We're going to look at chapters 30 and 31 as we continue to consider the worship of God's people, Israel. They have come to be near God as God's come to be near them, really. And then more than that, they are not just going to be near God, but they're going to know Him. They're going to have a relationship with Him. They're going to be His people. And that relationship with God's going to define them. It's going to really be a slogan. You are God's people. And so what are you going to be like? And we'll consider that in a moment. But as a way of transition or analogy, it hit the news this summer that our armed forces, uh, recruitment is actually way down. Uh, it's fallen off. The Army in particular uh, projected far to fall, far short of their stated goals. And they haven't met those goals actually since 2014 in trying to get more to enlist. And it's left everyone asking, you know, why are not more young men signing up uh, to join the military? And partly it seems, I would suggest, that it's our military has lost track of who they want to be and who they should be. And so then they're kind of people they want to enlist and sign up to defend the country. You know, in my growing up years, the slogan that stood out, it was, be all you can be in the army. And I'd say in some ways that was an effective slogan, evidently, because it helped people sign up. I don't know about that at the time anyway. But it was, the army was offering, we can help you reach your greatest potential, but the army way. Now, after that, they switched to another slogan for a short time, by the way, and there was army of one. Uh, why did they switch to this? I suppose so they could tell recruits what they thought recruits wanted to hear, you know, that they could be the next Arnold Schwarzenegger or something like this, you know, like in the movies, take on two bad guys and two machine guns in their hands and take down all the enemies, um, that they can be the this, this superstar army all to themselves. Uh, wouldn't you know that kind of worked against the whole teamwork mentality of the army? So they ditched that slogan. And anyway, they've still been recouping, uh, trying to, to get back uh, the recruitment that they had in their old days. And, and so when that happens, what goes on in our culture now when something doesn't work instead of coming up with new ideas? Well, let's just go back to the old ones and see if those work. And so what do you have? You have Indiana Jones number five. Yeah, that just shouldn't happen. And then you go back to be all you can be. And guess what? It's, neither of them worked. Um, it's just what we seem to be doing in our culture. Our military, though, back to that, and along with our nation, just seems to be losing its moorings about what actually, what do we actually stand for? What, what holds us together as a nation? Who are we? They seem to have lost sight of what really defines us as a people, as a nation, as a military you know, what do we have that's really worth fighting for? That should really be the question that should be putting out. And to transition back to ourselves, you know, maybe the same could be said of the church, that is the church at large, the evangelical church. Who are we? What defines us? Uh, what should we be like? You know, what's the culture saying? How should we respond? These kind of things. Well, as we turn to this text, we know you, you can't be defined by the culture. You can't be defined by any changing winds. Uh, the one that defines us is Him. And he's going to do that as we turn to this text. Our God defines us. He is the one who made us. We are His. And namely, we are His because we know Him. This is what we find so distinct in this text, analogy to us. They get to meet God. And as Israel meets God, they end up being defined by Him. An encounter with God leaves an indelible mark that defines who you are. It changes you forever. And so what are those marks then that define a people that have met God? that define a people that are God's people. What kind of people are we to be as his own people? 
Well, above all, we're people that have met God, and that fact alone must impact us, change us, and so define us. So as we look at Exodus 30 and 31, what we're seeing is a meeting with God. You come to meet the true God, He leaves an indelible mark, something that cannot be erased or removed out of you. You've been changed for life, for your life. So then we got to ask, are these kind of marks about the true people of God evident in you? And so what are they? Let's look at these five indelible marks of God's people. And the first one is this, is that God's people are a prayerful people. The people that meet the true God, that know the true God, they become a people dependent upon Him in prayer. We see that evidenced in these first 10 verses of chapter 30. The more you get to know the true God, the more you meet with Him, the more you want to depend upon Him, cast yourself upon Him. And this appears to be the implication of this next piece of furniture that goes in God's house, this tabernacle, and it's the altar of incense. So we open with verse 1. It goes like this. You shall make an altar on which to burn incense. You shall make it of acacia wood. And then as the descriptions continue, it sounds much like things that we heard about a few chapters ago. Again, all the different furniture pieces that are going in God's house. God has commanded Israel, you're going to make me a tent. This is going to be my house where I'm going to live next to you. And you're not only going to build the house, but you're going to build the furnishings that go inside. Well, here's the last one mentioned, and it's this altar of incense that actually is going to go in the house. And two things stand out about this altar of incense. Number one, it's made of gold. And it's made of pure gold, so... It can be located where it is. So here's a picture. We've used this before. This is taken from the ESV Study Bible. No rights reserved. Special permissions granted. And all of that stuff. So here's a picture of the tabernacle. But the altar of incense goes right here. Right in front of that veil that separates the holy place from the most holy place or the holy of holies. So God's presence in the holy of holies right behind that altar and its curtain. So this is close as you can get outside of actually getting in the ark itself to get to the presence of God in the Holy of Holies. That's why it's made out of gold. We see it situated here. Look at verse 6. You shall put it, the altar of incense, in front of the veil that is above the ark of the testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is above the testimony. Note this. Where I will meet with you. So he meets with them behind the veil. And the smoke of this altar will actually pass through the veil and go toward the ark. The special place where God meets with his people, where it is, where it is as if, as we've talked about, it's his feet go on the ark as his footstool, though he sits in heaven. You can't get any closer to God to meet with him than getting right here in front of that veil. That's why it had to be made out of gold, like all the other pieces of furnishings that were inside the tabernacle. But two, we note with this, altar is that it burns incense. It's not for sacrifices. It's not for meat. It's not for blood offerings. Look at verse 7. And Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. Every morning when he dresses the lamps, he shall burn it. And when Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it. That is, put the incense offering on before the Lord, and note this, throughout your generations. And we hear there even in verses 7 and 8, we'll come back to this, but Every morning and evening, you're putting the offering out onto this altar of incense. Now, here's the curious thing. There was another altar that we've been talking about, right? It was the bronze altar. It's located out here in the temple courtyard. So you see the picture of the tent, the tabernacle. But then out toward the front door is this other altar, what was called the bronze altar, because again, it was outside. 
And this is where the sacrifices were made. This is where the blood was poured out. And remember, we saw last time, how often were sacrifices to be on that altar? All the time. Morning and evening, new sacrifice put on, a new burning was put out. Now, this is important because let me show you these two altars together, the bronze one and the golden one side by side, and you'll notice there are some similarities. In a way, you see that the golden altar that was right by the veil, the one we're mainly talking about, it's kind of like a miniature version of the sacrifices that were being made outside on the big altar. You notice there, they both have a similar appearance. They both have these horns in the corners symbolizing strength. And they not only looked somewhat similar in their appearance, but they also functioned in a similar way. That is, sacrifices on the bronze altar outside were being offered up day and night. We read about last time. And now we find incenses being burned on that smaller altar. How often? Day and night. Smoke would be rising up on the bronze altar, and smoke would always be rising up on the incense golden altar right in front of the veil. Why is this? But that smaller altar is, in a way, kind of like a model of the bigger one. This altar of incense kind of models itself after that big bronze altar. Why? Because what did the big bronze altar grant us? That's where atonement was made. That's where peace was accomplished. That's where your sins got dealt with. It was when the blood was spilled of the sacrifice on the altar. And what did that grant us? That granted us peace with God, access to God. Such that now, as a smaller model of it, it's like God's people are taken right into the veil. And they are offered up themselves like smoke that passes through the veil on the little golden altar to go be with God, to fellowship with Him. In other words, if the sacrifice is going on on the bronze altar outside, there is then access to God on the inside past the veil, symbolized by this golden incense altar. And this is why in other places in Scripture, when it's talked about as burning incense, it's pictured as the very prayers of God's people going up right before the presence of God, right wafting up right under His nose. That's why David talks like this in Psalm 141. So Psalm 141, verses 1 and 2. O Lord, I call upon you. Hasten to me. Give ear to my voice when I call upon you. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you, lifting up my hands as the evening sacrifice. So he's calling upon God. God, hear me. I'm giving you my prayer. I'm giving you my request. I'm calling upon you. And then he says, let that be like the incense that is going behind the veil right into your presence. Or John the Apostle, he gives us a view of heaven and it makes this imagery just so transparent. It says this in Revelation chapter 5, verse 8. He has this view of heaven where the Lamb is taking the scroll, and it says, The 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, and each was holding a harp and holding golden bowls, bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So these burning incense are the very prayers, symbolic of the prayers of God's people going up into God's face and His ears. This vision portrays the place where God dwells, our prayers, the prayers of the saints. They're going right into God's throne room, right into His ears. It's here, as we, say, as we just read, this is where He meets with us. So we hear His Word, God meets with us, and we hear His Word, and then He hears our prayers as we offer them back in response. 
This is a sharing back and forth between us and God. You know what that is in a biblical language? That's fellowship. That's communion. That's communication back and forth, a sharing of life. This offering on the incense altar, this is picturing our fellowship with God accomplished by the sacrifice made on the other altar. But even then, that's only symbolic of what we in Christ enjoy right now. You get this? It's just the kind of access, the kind of fellowship Christ has won for you by His sacrifice on the cross. Such that, as we know, the veil is torn, right? There is no barrier, and you waft into the presence of God, so to speak. What does this mean? Because of Christ, because His sacrifice has done it, what does this mean? You can come to Him with any need at any time. And more than this, He wants you to. The neon sign says, open for prayer business 24-7. He's inviting you. This is why Christ came, to grant you access so you can cast your cares on Him. He wants you to do it. Why? Because He cares for you. You know, this is somewhat a contrast to how I relate to my kids, okay? They have requests. I don't always want to hear from them. You know, especially when I'm working at home. I have a study here. I try and work during the week. Uh, but then invariably on the weekends, especially Friday, uh, I'm writing at home. And then when my kids are around, they know I'm at my desk and I'm working. They know I shouldn't be disturbed. I close the sliding door. I close the little double doors that go to our schoolroom where I study. And I'm always working in there. And generally, they are pretty good. But sometimes I get interrupted. And uh, then sometimes I get frustrated, the Christian word for angry. And um, when I do... When I do, to be clear, that's my problem. Evidently, my priorities have gotten out of whack, okay? So leave that aside. But get this, because of the blood of Christ, you're never interrupting the Father, ever. He's never thinking, you're back again with that? Didn't we talk about this just like 20 minutes ago? Why are you coming back with that? Like the incense that was on that altar that constantly goes up before God day and night, so can your moments of prayer just be constant and any time rising up to his throne and he wants to hear from you. Doesn't this beautifully picture too what Paul captures in his command in 1 Thessalonians 5, 17? When he gives this curious command and he says, pray, it's a command, pray, but without ceasing. And that pictures here the smoke constantly going up morning and night from this altar. I think sometimes, too, we hear this as a command, pray without ceasing, and we sometimes use it as an excuse. It's like reason not to pray. It's like, well, I obviously can't do that, so kind of why bother? Um, I, I got to focus on other things. I mean, don't I have to sleep sometimes? How can you pray without ceasing? And, and if that's our attitude, we miss what this is all about. This command to pray without ceasing, it's not to be a burden. You know, it's not some requirement for your soul. You better be saying your prayers and that every moment of every second of your day. That's not what this is. This command to pray without ceasing is not a burden. It's an invitation. It's an invitation to actually go before your Father and have your burdens lifted and let Him carry them. It's not to be an obligation. It's an invitation to come to Him with anything on your heart, any need you have, any struggle you're going through, just any praise you want to give throughout the day. You're never interrupting Him. He's actually made the way so you can do this. He wants you to come. You wake up in the middle of the night, maybe it's to come and pray to Him. 
Or when you rise the first thing in the morning, you, you can give him praise. Or throughout the day, this is what the cross has bought you, but constant access by the Spirit to the Father to come to him in prayer. This is what should define us as the people of God. And it's all because of Jesus Christ. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. And then you know this last part. If you don't know it by words, you know it in your heart. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. What needless pain we bear. Why? Because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. He's made the way. Draw near to Him. Pray. Give Him those cares. He cares for you. That should mark the people of God. It should be a prayer for people. We should also be a redeemed people. And so if the question that we can ask first was, are you praying? Does that define you? Uh, the question we could give now, are you redeemed? Are you redeemed by God? Because His people are a redeemed people. And we see this in verses 11 to 16 of chapter 30. This is the next mark that defines the people of God. They are redeemed people. And we love this idea that we are redeemed. We embrace this. We don't shun this. We don't shy away from this. We know we need a redemption, and so we embrace it. And this truth is pictured for us as Israel's being asked to personally, individually, give this what the ESV and my uh, side heading here calls a census tax. But it's, it's all about redemption. Let's look at verses 11 and 12. The Lord said to Moses, when you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. So this is pretty serious. But what's going on? So the people of God are being counted. It's a census. It's a numbering of those people who are going to get to be near God. This isn't just the priests. This isn't just the special people. This is any person in Israel that gets to live near God. This exclusive class among all the peoples of the earth, Israel, who gets to be near God and be his people. That's who's being counted. Who are those who are going to have a close relationship with this God? Now, we've seen before, and this is what the tabernacle has been teaching us over and over. Getting near this God for us, this is dangerous. Why? He's holy. We're not. We're sinful. So when you're getting near this God, there's a price that has to be paid. This is what a ransom is. This is what redemption means. A, redemp a ransom price is paid so you can be redeemed. You can be redeemed from the judgment you deserve. And in this case, the plague that should come upon you for getting near this God. You can be spared, but it comes at the ransom price. But the point is here, the ransom tax, it's not forced. You know, it's not pulled right out of the people's pockets. Uh, they're being invited in to this relationship, invited to contribute this. These funds, as we'll see in a bit, are used to establish and build this tabernacle. But note this, note verse 13. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this, a half shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. 
So notice, this is for everybody. It'll talk about the rich and the poor. You all pay the same price. You all pay the same ransom tax. And whoever they are in Israel, if you want to be near this God, you pay this price. In one sense, everybody has to pay it, but it's everybody who, and this is the emphasis, wants to be with God. So this isn't so much about, you know, you're an ethnic Israelite. This is about, I want to be in relationship with God. That's why you pay this ransom. And I say this because of how the text in verse 13 actually more literally reads in the Hebrew, and maybe to our surprise, the NIV, which is not necessarily the most literal translation. It actually exposes the Hebrew most transparently here. Here's how it renders verse 13. It says, instead of, the ESV has, what is it, each one who is to be counted, or excuse me, each one who is numbered, the NIV has, each one who crosses over to those already counted. Each one who crosses over to those already counted. What's the picture? You got all these people, and it's like a line's been drawn in the sand. We get this picture. And there's people over there, and there's God over here on the other side of the line. And if you want to stand with God, you want to be with God's people, you got to cross the line. You got to come over and stand with Him. But if you do, you got to pay the ransom tax. That's the only way you get over. And so you see, each one is numbered. Each one personally is paying out to saying, I want to stand with God. I want to be with Him. I want to be His people, even if it means that I need to be redeemed. And so you see then, all that cross over, they are the redeemed. The ransom was paid for them. And more than this too, they have been humbled because they paid the tax to be ransomed. But they wanted this. Because they knew this was the price to be near God. Because this is what redemption is all about. We've seen these pictures already throughout Exodus, giving us so many of these, even our own relationship in Christ. But it began at the Passover, right? This was a ransom paid to redeem them out of slavery, out of Egypt, out of death. The, the price of the lamb's sacrifice. Because what's the point? If you need redemption, what are you then saying? You're saying that you are a slave. You're saying that you are guilty. You are saying that you have done wrong. You are worthy of death. You're worthy of the punishment of slavery. And so you understand you've done wrong. A price has got to be paid. And so you're going to put out the ransom tax to pay it, to buy you back to God. And to be clear, you cannot be then, this is the point, you cannot be part of God's people. You cannot be one of His Unless you can see yourself as one who needed redemption. You get that? You cannot be one of God's unless you see that you have done something drastically wrong. You cannot be one of God's people unless you know that you have sinned, that you deserve judgment. Because until you can see that, you're not ready to be His people. Until you can see that you're guilty before God, you have no need for a redemption price. And of course, this is picturing only for us what Christ has done. And the New Testament picks up on this over and over again to speak that we've been redeemed, right? He paid the price, that our sins are gone and forgiven. And this has to define us, that we had royally messed up before God. We were worthy of death and hell, and we give out anything. There is no ransom tax. There is no offering because the blood of Jesus paid it. But you have to come forward and say, I crossed the line. I want to stand with him which means I stand as a sinner, but I stand as a sinner who trusts in the forgiving work of Jesus Christ. 
And so what does this mean then for us? That kind of redemption that has to define you, that you were redeemed for free by the work of Jesus' blood, that you have been forgiven, you've been embraced when you didn't deserve it, all because of the price Jesus paid. So how does that then play out? How does that define us? What does that look like? The New Testament starts to explore some of these things. But in short, it looks like if you've been freely redeemed, freely forgiven, that is, you didn't pay, well, then you better freely forgive others, right? That's what Paul says in Colossians. Forgive and bear with one another as what? Christ has forgiven you. Or Paul puts it like this in Ephesians chapter 5. Here's Paul's words. He says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Be like your father. Which, what did that look like? And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So he gave himself as an offering, Christ did, to reconcile us, that we would be loved, be redeemed, that we would be bought back to God and free. And so if we've been redeemed like this, what's Paul's point? How can we not freely forgive too? And if we're not willing to forgive, but we'd rather hold on to bitterness and past transgressions, is it because we forgot our own redemption? Redemption and redemption by grace alone must define us. Also, as the people of God, we are to be a sanctified people. See this in the remainder of chapter 30. So now the question we're asking is, are you different? Are you, in that way, sanctified, set apart? Has God changed you? Has He changed you to look more like Christ? That's what's going to be the mark of God's people. They're going to be different and set apart from the world. And we see that, again, through the remainder of chapter 30, as we have these three sets of instructions that, that all relate to making persons or preparing things, people utensils, to be ready for worship. They're going to be sanctified. The word is consecrated. Or they're going to be, if we could coin a new term, holyified, made holy and fit for God's service. So in verses 17 to 21, the Lord gives Moses guidelines for making this large basin, kind of like a giant bowl, like a giant bowl, like a swimming pool bowl, that would hold a lot of water and be used for washings, such that we read in verse 19, that this is the place where the priests are going to do any washings for themselves or for their sacrifices and preparations. Now, just by way of reminder, especially in our compulsive washing hands culture, uh, none of these washings were about germs. That was not their concern. What were these washings? They were symbolizing the matter of holiness, spiritual purity. And it was pretty serious because it was life and death serious. Look at verse 21. They shall wash their hands and their feet. Why? So that they may not die. And not because they pick up a cold. They're going to die because they're not holy. They need to be set apart and cleansed in the soul. That's what this was symbolizing. We look to the next paragraph, verses 22 through 33. And here the Lord gives a special recipe for the anointing oil. Verse 25. And you shall make of these a sacred anointing oil blended as by the perfumer. 
It shall be a holy, so think set apart, dedicated, anointing oil. And it's set apart because it's only used for the worship of God. For no other purpose, no other design. It was actually forbidden to be used in any other way, such that if you try to use it in any other way, verse 33, it leads to death. If you try and make this special anointing oil common by using it for something it wasn't intended, namely the worship of God. And really, the same could be said about the incense recipe. That's what follows in verses 34 to the end. Again, it can't be used. The special concoction for the incense that's going to be burned in the tabernacle can't be used for any other thing. Look at verse 37. And the incense that you make according to its composition, you shall not make it for yourselves. It shall be for you wholly set apart to the Lord. Note this, verse 38, whoever makes any like it to use as a perfume shall be cut off from his people. You know, there's no copycat recipes here for this incense, unless you want to risk your soul. What does this mean? That means this concoction, this incense scent is dedicated to God. No one else goes with this smell. In this way, it's really like God has his own cologne a scent that goes with His holiness. And any attempt to replicate that or put it on something that's not holy like He is, that's worthy of death. Because really the point isn't so much the smell, but it's exclusive use by God. Nothing else can be associated with it. And that's true about the, the, the oil as well or the special washing place. They only go with God. Now, you might know this something similar in your own personal experience, not with God, that is. But maybe you have a special perfume that you wore, say, on your wedding day. And it's kind of expensive, so you don't wear it every day as you're homeschooling or whatever you do during the typical day. Uh, you only wear it, you wore it on your wedding day. You wear it maybe on your anniversaries or some special dates with your husband. But you don't use it for anything else. And really, because you only use it for your times with him, it'd be wrong to use it on any other occasion. You know, say like spraying your kid's stinky soccer cleats with it. You wouldn't do that with very expensive perfume. Because this scent is dedicated to God alone. It's like called tabernacle. It's God's smell. And it's holy. And what's the point with all of these cleansing and all of these directives? It's saying that God is different and so His people must be different. Separate, dedicated to Him. And that's been taught through the whole exposition of the law that we've been looking at. Remember, he tells all the people, be holy. And why? Because you're my people. I'm holy, so my people got to be holy. Set apart, different, different from the world. God, in this way, even represented in kind of these scents and so forth, he has his brand that's associated with him. And his brand, it's not cool. It's not trendy. His brand's not popular. His brand's not comfortable. What is his brand? Holy. That's God's brand. And we understand this is only illustrative, just a deeper, true holiness. It's the holiness of a changed life. That's what all of this is pointing to, a Christ-like life. This isn't about being holy in our rituals or in our formality or in our liturgy. That's not what makes us holy. What makes us holy? What makes us like God? 
living obediently, living according to his word, having a changed life. That's the holiness he's after. That's why in his first letter, Peter puts it like this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14. He says, as obedient children, these are his people, obedient children. What does that mean for us? Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. You can't keep living and thinking like you used to think. you got to be different now, changed. Why? But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, all your life. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So there it is. Be holy. Be different. Be strange in that way. Surprising, weird in the world's eyes. But because you're living like Jesus. So what about you? Have you changed yet? Are you living differently? And maybe if you've been walking with Christ for some time, you would say yes overall, but maybe you've been slacking off, drifting or reverting back to old ways of thinking or living. So this is a wake-up call. Be changed today. Be more holy today. Be more like Christ today. Let your life look set apart, dedicated to God, because it's not the same as it once was. Furthermore, we are to be an empowered people. Looking at verses 1 to 11, we find that God's people are servants, empowered by the Spirit of God to do His work. And so then the question for us is, are you serving? Are you using that gift to help others? See that here as we turn to chapter 31, the first 11 verses. What's pictured for us, we see this pictured for us by these couple special characters mentioned, namely this chief artisan, Bezalel. And the language here that the Bible uses to express how God equips him for this task really anticipates how God equips all now his people in the new covenant to serve him. Let's see this. But before we do, just, just by way of reminder, what have we seen as we've been flipping through Exodus? So since chapter 25, you know, like six weeks ago plus, <laughs> we've been studying the designs for the tabernacle, how this building should be made, and then we looked at the priests and what, uh, how they need to be prepped for this ministry they're involved in and so forth. So God gave down all the specific plans. The point is, you can't make this up as you go. You don't have the freedom to, to do what you want here. I want you to do it just as I said you should do it. But now here's the thing. And it's not like he gives them all the plans and says, here's how it's got to be done, and I sure hope it goes well. Let me know. He's not going to leave them to their own resources. He says, here's what needs to happen, and I'll give you the physical resources to build it, right? He had them plunder Egypt. That's where they got all this gold and so forth. But furthermore, he not only gives them the physical, but here he's giving them the spiritual resources, the very skills and abilities they need to put this whole thing together. And we see it takes in the end the spirit, the spirit of God to fill them to do it. So with all that said, let's now look at it. Verse 1 of chapter 31. The Lord said to Moses, See, I've called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, which gives him what? The ability and intelligence with knowledge and all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs 
to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood to work in every craft. I mean, you get this. This is every skill, all the wisdom needed to put this whole thing together is being like downloaded now to Bezalel's brain and being applied to his very fingertips such that he can teach others to do the very same thing. To do what? To do it just like God wanted. Such that, as we see verses 7 through 11, he reviews all the things that are to be made, beaten, woven, and formed. But this divine conclusion stands out. So let's pick it up. Let's look at verse 6, actually. Verse 6 starts like this. And behold, I've appointed with him, that is with Bezael, this other guy, Aholiab, the son of Ahisamach of the tribe of Dan, And what's the point? And I have given to all able men ability. He's given them the ability to do what? That they may make all that I've commanded you. God's commanded. And then he's giving them the ability to meet the command. Such that by the end, look at the end of verse 11. After he lists all of those things that they're supposed to make. How does it work? According to all that I've commanded you, they shall do. God lays out the design, he lays out the commands, and he says, the way you're going to meet the command is by my equipping spirit. Because that's the whole point of why the spirit filled Bezalel. Look at verse 3 again. And I have filled him with the spirit of God, with ability, intelligence, knowledge, and all craftsmanship to build all this stuff. Now, this experience in the Old Testament is really rare. It only happens a few times where the Spirit of God comes down on somebody and fills them to equip them from some special task or effort. As one Bible teacher puts it, he said it like this, the whole filling of the Spirit of God, he says, it is a biblical idiom, an expression, for having from God the ability to do or say exactly what God wants done or said. That's perfect. And for Bezael, this means he's given the special ability to meet God's high, perfect standards. And the point is, in such a way, it's as if God was working right through Bezael to, again, build it precisely as God wanted. Okay, but now here's the thing. Though in the Old Testament, this kind of filling thing is a rarity. It hardly happens. But now in the new covenant, where the Spirit of God comes to live inside of you, this kind of feeling is a defining feature of every member of the people of God. That is, if you're in Christ, you have His Spirit. Why? Because He's empowering you to minister. Listen to this. This is 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 through 7. Now, 1 Corinthians 12. Now, these there are variety of gifts but the same Spirit, and the varieties of service, <coughs> excuse me, but the same Lord, and the varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Note this, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. There it is. If you are in Christ, been brought into Him, He's given you His Spirit, and not just to sit on our ears but to be active and serving and speaking and ministering for the good of the body. You have been, and we talked about this last time, already ordained and equipped for ministry because His Spirit dwells in you. And that's true of every believer in this room. So then we have to ask, does that define you? How are you gifted? Or more importantly, really the question is, are you serving? 
How are you serving? Now, at this point, we, you know, we could go over like the lists of the various spiritual gifts listed in the New Testament. Um, but I understand that those lists are not exhaustive. That's why they don't always match one for one. They are just giving you the kinds of gifts. But I think actually then in this way, 1 Peter chapter 4 might be uh, most helpful to us. Because it gives you a framework in giving you two kinds of gifts that you can summarize all the gifts this way. A way that the Spirit has gifted you right now to build up His church. So we hear this. This is 1 Peter 4, verse 10 and 11. As each has received a gift, so, and that's true of everybody here if you're in Christ, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. He's graced you with this, and, and you need to use it. You're a steward. It's not even for you. It's for you to use. Well, how do you use it? Well, here's the two categories. Verse 11. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God. So there's speaking gifts. Some of you have been particularly equipped to minister the word of God. And so you open your mouth. That's one category. And the other category, equally valuable, is this. He goes on. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. And whether you're speaking or whether you're serving by His strength, it works to the same end in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Speak God's Word to others, depending on Him to make it clear and make the change and fruitful in people's lives. And two, or serve in Christ's name, residing on His strength to help others cherish Him. And maybe you're thinking, okay... Well, I kind of get how you glorify Jesus when you, you, you minister the word, you preach the gospel. But, but what does it look like to do merely works of service and to glorify God? And again, I think Peter gives us a clue here. Back to verse 11, when he says, Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. That is, as you are serving, as you are helping, you're dependent on Him to equip you, depend on Him to supply you, depend on Him to give you the patience to just keep doing, to keep serving and meeting needs when in your flesh, for whatever reason, you want to give up. You know that feeling? Because there's all kinds of ways it can turn up. You know, when your flesh tells you, ah, you've served enough. You serve more than that guy over there. Or your flesh is telling you things like, you know, they don't deserve any more help from me. They did me wrong. I shouldn't be helping them. Or maybe it's, you know that person needs help, but you don't know how any way you could add to help them or do this. And so what do you do? You pray. That's what you do. You say, oh God, help me. I don't want to do this, but I need to do it. Or I don't have the strength to do it. I don't know how to do it, but I need, they need help and you've put me here. So help me. And so what do you do? You step forward in faith. That's what this looks like. And you thank Him for giving you the help to serve when you didn't think to or didn't want to do it anymore. That's what depending on His strength can look like. And it gives much glory to Jesus Christ, who is that ultimate pattern of service, isn't He? When it says, He came down from heaven not to be served, though that was His right, but He came down to serve even when it meant giving himself out as a ransom. That gives God great glory. So what can you do? How can you serve 
this week to honor his name. Finally, we must be a reliant people. Do you trust him? Is now the question we have to ask as we wrap up here, Exodus 31. This is the final mark that defines God's people in this text. They trust and rely upon their God. And how is that? Namely, they are doing things that God wants in God's way in His timing. They're reliant people. They're trusting God, and so they do what God wants in God's way in God's timing. And so in this case, we're really turning to the question in God's timing. And what's God's timing here in building this whole tabernacle and all the sacrifices and everything? It's not ASAP, as soon as possible, chop, 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 better get to it. That's not His command. Actually, he says, understand, you cannot work on this thing on the Sabbath. You've got to work by faith. Catch the emphasis here. Look at verse 12. And the Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, note that, above all, the things that he said here, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Apparently, this is pretty serious. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among the people. Even when it comes to making the ark the dwelling place of God. Now, we engaged on the Sabbath in some detail some weeks ago as we walked through the Ten Commandments. So I'm going to refer you to that message for time to think about more how does the Sabbath relate to the Christian life. But we turn to now the question, well, why is it rehearsed again here? Because we already covered it, didn't we? Why does he go back here? Well, two reasons, I think. One, it's because he highlights, and this is new emphasis, he highlights that it's a sign of this covenant, The Sinai covenant that he's making with the people of Israel. The sign of the Mosaic covenant. Look at verse 16. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel. It's a sign, the Sabbath is, a pointer, a reminder of their relationship they have with the Creator through this Mosaic covenant, what we call the Old Covenant. And it's further embodied and pictured by these stone tablets that Moses finally receives from the Lord. Look at verse 18. And God gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, two tablets of testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. This was that summary of the whole Mosaic Covenant. Note they were written by God's hand, so these are holy words. They're written on stone. That's to show something of their strength, even the seriousness. Somewhat, it looks like the permanence of it, but it also serves to underscore that these things are not alive. They are stone. They are dead, and they can't of themselves give life. So they're going to need a new and better covenant that's not written on stone, but hearts. We'll get to that one day, but here we are. Why talk about the Sabbath, though? Why bring this up again? Frankly, I just think it's really simple. He gave him all these plans, and these are exciting plans. This is like the kid, when he opens his Lego on Christmas, he looks at the instruction booklet, or most kids would, and they're like, I want to build this thing. And they're going to do it through lunch and dinner. They don't care. 
I'll work 60 hours, 70 hours this week. I'll work nonstop, no holidays, no rest days. And God's like, tut, 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 no. I know you think this is really important. And maybe in history, this is the most important thing ever to be built. But God says, hold on. I want you to trust me even in building this. You need to work by faith, not relying on yourself. And that's to draw back what we saw about the Sabbath. Most of all, what was it about? It was about resting in God's work and ability and not your own. Can you trust God enough to rest in His work and not what you've done? Which means what? Doing God's things in God's way in God's timing. And so what does that mean? Just very practically for us. That means not neglecting your family though you have a really important Bible lesson to give and to study for. That means not watering down the gospel because you want people to still like you and to try and change the message. That's not God's way. That means not building your church around what's going to bring a crowd. Oh, we can get all these people in here and then we can kind of bait and switch. Oh, by the way, let me tell you about Jesus. Again, that's not God's way. No, we're going to have to trust God's way to build his church and his kingdom and trust him to use us and whatever abilities we have to his glory, not for ours. Why? Because we trust him. We can rest in him. That's why we preach the way we do. That's why we do church the way we do. Why? Because we trust God's spirit to do the work. We don't have to manipulate hearts. And even if we did, that doesn't last. We need God to do it. What has he called us to do? Be faithful. Be faithful. With the limited person energy you have, be found faithful and he will take care of the rest. And being found faithful in his time. In that way, being full of faith, right? Resting on, because this is what we do when we refuse to rest. What are we doing? We're thinking extra efforts, more umpteen hours of prayer, some kind of added thing will make us more secure, more redeemed, more accepted, more at peace with God when he's saying, rest in me. Do it my way. Yes, work hard, but do it my way. Which means looking to what the cross has bought you as sure. So we will trust him. We will be reliant people and let him use us. Let's pray for that. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we can rest in the work that you have accomplished and not in ourselves, that in that way we can be a reliant people, even relying upon you to give us the strength when we need to serve and relying on you that we could never do enough to make you love us, but we will rest in what Christ has done and glory in it. So may we be a people redeemed for good works, to live, to testify to you, because you're a great Savior. May we be a people marked by that kind of mercy. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.